0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design
1: and delivery. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, and I'm Stuart Craner. Today, our guest is Alex Hill. Alex is co-founder and director of the Center for High Performance, and an associate professor at Kingston University. He's co-author of the Harvard Business Review article, How Winning Organizations Last 100 Years. Alex, Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. For your research, you identified seven uh, long-lasting uh, organisations, and they were kind of a disparate, disparate group, the, the Royal Academy of Music, the, the Royal College of Art, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Eton College, NASA, uh, Eton College and NASA, not, not organisations you normally see uh, next to each other, uh, the New Zealand All Blacks, the, the rugby team, and British Cycling. Uh, yeah. what, what was the rationale behind, between the, behind the choice of the seven? Because they're, they're, they're a great mix.
0: So so what happened was the, the work started uh, with a colleague of mine who coaches uh, the Olympic coaches, and it was in the run-up to the London Games. And he said, you know, I've been spending a lot of time with UK Sport, the funding body for the Olympic teams. Uh, I think there's something really interesting going on here. Why don't we go in and find out what's happening? So we spent some time with a gentleman called Peter Keane. He uh, was the person who started the transformation of cycling. So he saw the lottery money uh, coming, he um, wrote the first business plan, he got the first gold medal. Uh, UK Sports then said, could you replicate what you've done for cycling for the other Olympic teams? So he developed a funding model where, it, using 21 factors, you could start to predict, um, he felt, how many medals a team would win. So we spent a day with him and he basically talked us through his whole journey and the model. And when we said to him, Well, what keeps you awake at night? his response was, Is it sustainable? I said, well, who do you think you could learn from? He said, well, I think the arts, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. And that really was the catalyst for the the, the work. That's myself beforehand. Uh, he sort of stimulated that idea. And then as it started to, to go along, we were saying, well, we need this to sort of be a bigger group. Um, so we just asked around colleagues, you know, academics, consultants, practitioners, um, who are the organizations that are generally admired and seen as um, having sustained success for a long period of time um, what we didn't want which has happened in too many of the similar studies is the argument becomes around the organizations that are selected rather than the ideas that come out of them so we were very keen to pick ones where um, that debate wouldn't be there and also ones where it was unlikely that they were suddenly going to tumble in the next 10, 20 years. So, um, so we, we, we kept trying to find a business. Um, but the three criteria that we, we used were: has an organization been doing the same thing for a hundred years, uh, have they outperformed their peers for at least half of that time? and are they admired by others in their sector and what we struggled with the businesses was to find ones that had been doing the same thing for such a long period because uh, often they are buying and selling other organizations or chopping and changing. Uh, the second thing was finding ones that were admired where actually within their sector everybody looked to them for you know for ideas. So. Um, so it, it, it led us and it was a very organic process, but it led us to look at arts and science and sports and education rather than business.
1: And what, what surprised you when you started looking at these
0: organizations? How similar they were. I mean, that was the thing. Whenever you start a piece of research, you have no idea what you're doing or what you're going to find. So the, the the real insights came from spending time in the organisation. So, um, you know, in some, like the Royal College of Art and Eton, spent a year there, you know, observing. Um, so you observe sort of key events or key things over the year, and often they only happen once a year. Um, and what would happen is just kind of hung out there. So the Royal College of Art, for example, gave me a pass, so I could just go whenever I wanted uh, sometimes that was interviewed people, sometimes it was just to spend time there. Um, and the thing you started to notice was that you were basically meeting the same person. So the person I met in one organization, I met that same person in another organization. I met that same person in another organization. And you suddenly started to realize they're all very similar individuals. Um, what also then started to happen was you'd stumble across an idea. So the fact that they use a lot of part-time experts um, was just, you know, a casual conversation in the Royal Academy of Music. And they said, well, you know, 60% of our staff are part-time. And it's like, oh, that's interesting because that's not the norm in business. And then, and then you say, oh, let's see if that's true elsewhere. And it is. So what you would often do is you'd find something, you'd stumble across something and then test it against the other seven and realize it's very consistent. Um, So the other one was, you know, first approached the All Blacks and they said, if you want to study us, you need to understand the role we play in New Zealand society. And then as you dig deeper, you find out, well, actually, they were set, their first tour in 1905 was to promote New Zealand on a world stage because uh, it was coming out of the Commonwealth and it was worried, how was it going to trade? So they had the first All Blacks tour, which was basically to go and raise New Zealand's profile. And they are like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's actually at the core of what they do. And then speaking to friends in New Zealanders, they talked about how when um, there was a New Zealand tour to South Africa under apartheid, how his mum and dad didn't speak to each other for for three months because his dad thought it was fine, but his mum was like, no, they're representing our society. This is our society. This is not just a game of rugby. So, and then you started to dig deeper and go, oh, oh, actually, all of them were set up right from the start. So, so it's the similarity that surprised us, and it also it's the similarity that surprised them. So the week before observing students' works being critiqued at the Royal College of Arts, I'd been... At British boxing, the Olympic boxing team, and watching a psychologist debrief a fight with the fighter and the coach. And essentially, the psychologist is sitting there saying, you know, through the course of this fight, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why have your hands just dropped? What was going through your mind? And so, essentially, unpicking it from a mental level. And then I sat down and watched these students' work being critiqued, and the same thing was happening. And I said to them after, I said, do do you realise that that was just like me watching the boxing team last week? And that kind of, you know, that totally surprised them. Um, So I think it was the similarity that was really surprising. Uh, The other thing that, that started to happen is, you know, I've worked in, you know, business, I ran businesses for 10 years, uh, engineering businesses. I've then worked with lots of businesses since. Uh, and what you also started to notice was that there was something different to what I've experienced before. So, um, and that really i kind of, I think was what then became the thrust of the work was to try and work out what what was different to, to business. Um, but yeah, the first thing that struck you was, how similar they actually are
1: so this was a five-year process
0: it was yeah and it tended to be a year for each organization so you would kind of embed or gather you know data wherever you could um it's um you know some of them it was really easy to observe, others like NASA and the All Blacks were harder to observe, but, you know, we were able to speak to astronauts who who, who had been in space, who kind of understood how the organisation operated. Um, you know, the great thing about NASA actually is when you delve into it, how public it is. So all of its research and all of its findings are publicly available online. Uh, when you want to try and analyse its workforce, there's actually a spreadsheet online that's set up that you can then just analyse and, and look at so you can work out how many people are part-time. You can work out which roles in the organisation where is where they are part-time. So they are incredibly open and, and, and really easy to research. Um, whereas others, uh, like the arts organisations, haven't really been researched in the same way. So the way to really understand them was to, to spend time in them.
1: So how how do you translate this to the corporate world? You you then you shared the findings I think with 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 people from successful organisations, corporations.
0: Yeah, we. So what I was finding over this five years is that you know you'd have a pint with a friend or 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 meet someone for dinner. And they'd say, what are you up to? And you'd start talking about it. And people became interested. And they'd say, well, what what should I do? You know, what can I learn? And I'd try and tell them and lose them very, very quickly. They'd get bored or they wouldn't understand what I was talking about. So you sort of had like a five-year dry run of trying to have this conversation, realising it wasn't working. And also everyone just kept saying, you know, just tell me three things I should do differently. And then they'll go, actually don't, just tell me one thing, just one thing. You know, I know you've done all this work, but just give me one thing and you go, okay, that's what people want. People don't want a long list, they want a very short list, but the the trick is how do you get the right short list? So- And what is
1: the one thing? When your friends were pestering you, what, what would you
0: say? the thing that i think is really interesting that is counterintuitive and is different to what we're taught in business and in business schools is uh, we're often taught that you need to be a or b and and pick one of those things and then become really good at it what we found with these organizations is that they weren't they were a and b and what they were is that a and b were often in conflict so If you're kind of going to describe them as a person, they are incredibly humble. All of the people you meet, and the the nature of the organization is that they're very humble, they're very nervous, and they are humble, so they keep learning, but they equally are incredibly confident, and they're confident to want to shape the world and have a huge impact, and they're very certain in their beliefs but they are humble too. So you see this kind of dichotomy there. They're humble and they're confident. They're old and they're new. So they're they're doing new things, but they've also got lots of old things. Um, And what you also started to really notice with them was this idea of stability and disruption. So there were certain things, you know, uh, 60% of their staff are part-time, but then the others are there for 15, 20 years. And you start to go, well, that's just like this whole kind of, you're not A or B, you're A and B, and you've worked out how to to have that balance in place at the same time.
1: Yeah, You describe it as they're the radically traditional, with a stable core but a disruptive edge.
0: Yeah, and that's a phrase we took from the Royal College of Arts. The director the there, first time I met him, he, he said we're radically traditional. And, and that kind of phrase really stuck. And again, when we were trying to tell, explain the research and the ideas uh, to others, uh, I kind of came up with about 50 different phrases, uh, but that was the one that people connected with and the one that people remembered. And, and, it, and I think what it does is, it, is it's it, at the essence, it's saying, you know, what are your traditions that keep you on track? but equally how do you stay radical to keep moving forwards and and how do you do both? And how do you, how do you essentially keep reviewing your traditions to to check that they're still adding value? So a really sort of simple example of that is that once a year, Eton tend to take an idea and then use that to rethink what they do. So last year, um, you know, it was the growth mindset, which is being used a lot in education at the moment. Um, but the, um, they, I watched them reviewing every single piece of feedback that is given to a student. So looking at every verbal and every written piece of feedback, every single person at the school had to do a very intensive um, you know, workshops, a series of workshops about it. And they went in, you know, to that really in-depth detail about how do we encourage the right mindset within our within our um, students. So, and then they've now moved on to something else. But you you, you see this within all of the organisations. They kind of look at something and they go into a huge amount of detail and and make sure. Uh, at a very detailed level they've got the right things in place and and then they keep doing that and they keep doing that in a number of different ways
1: i suppose you're looking at the corporate world when it comes to being radically traditional you you may you could argue that uh most organizations aren't either of those things they tend not to be radical uh I mean, okay you could say that uh some startups might be radical uh and they're certainly not traditional. organisation, corporations, don't really nurture. Often, don't nurture their, their their past.
0: I think some do. I think some do. You know, I think one of. I think I think if you look in, say, you know, somewhere like the banking sector, some of the tradition, like the HSBCs. Um, I think they are still very quite traditional and I think you know a good example of that is in their sort of I think it's 160 year heritage I'm, I'm not quite sure the facts but they've only appointed one CEO externally in that whole period so they kind of recognize that you don't want to bring someone in at that level who is completely brand new and will shake everything up and potentially knock you off track um you see in rolls-royce engines a similar pattern where um at ceo level the new ceo tends to come in at least four years beforehand and they announce that the current one's going to set down at least a year before they do and there is this transition period so i think they are those sorts of organisations are trying to make sure their heritage is in place and that knowledge and and is passed on and it doesn't get lost. Um, but then, obviously, yes, yeah, some of the the, the organisations I think we hold up as being exemplars at the moment are the more radical ones. Um, but how long they will survive for, I think, is is a big question because um, a lot of them haven't had. So one of the things that we we want we wanted with our research was organisations where they've continued to perform after very significant changes in leadership, and they've done that through a number of significant changes. So, um, you know, I think there's still lots of question marks over Apple. You know, how, are they just making a lot of money out of old ideas at the moment? Have they really had any new ideas since Jobs stepped down? that weren't actually part of his legacy anyway it's a question mark i don't know
1: um, but there's a limit to i mean a company like apple is a good a good example in that longevity might not be a good idea i mean and to some extent it's had it's changed uh, its technology has changed industries it's changed the world the yeah. likely the likelihood of it carrying on to come up with such industry changing and world changing technologies is probably quite slim history suggests that you kind of run out of steam and ideas yeah. come from elsewhere therefore actually it becoming a cash cow where it kind of harvests its yeah. brilliance from the past it might be the way forward and after another 20, 20 years as a cash cow it it, uh, it, yeah it shares the money out and uh, moves on
0: yeah i think you're right I think that's fine if that's a conscious decision. And I think that's fine if we know that those sorts of practices create that. So if we just focus on growth and we just focus on efficiency, then essentially what we're doing is we're trying to make as much money and execute our current ideas and practices you know, as cheaply as possible. We get as big returns from what we currently know and we get better and better what we currently know and and we get a huge financial return um i guess that the, the question i've got is whether people are doing that in the knowledge that therefore they're going to die in 20 years or that they are going to have to basically do a radical change they are going to have to sell that business and buy a new one um so i think there's, there's, there's the first question is is that clarity there? And I don't think it is. I think there's an assumption that as you grow, you become stronger. Um, whereas actually that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, the, the second thing is, as you start to see that thinking moving into sectors where it's not appropriate that they die in 20 years. So if you look at the, the you know, the health service in the UK, A lot of the consultancy business thinking that is going into that sector now is applying the growth and costs type of thinking. Um, Does that mean we're gonna have an incredibly high-performing health service for 20 years and then it dies? Um, I don't know. But I question whether that's the right thing for that sector and for our society. So I think there needs to be a balance. There needs to be some, and if you look again, you know, I think if, if you take your own life as an example, you need to have some stability in your life and some disruption. And you need that balance of the two. As soon as you become too stable, essentially you're, you're, you're dying. But as soon as you become too disruptive, yes, you might be brilliant for a period of time, but then it could spiral out of control. So I just think that as a society, we need some stability and some disruption. And my concern is at the moment often we are holding up as great examples the the disruption and we're ignoring the fact that actually stability is also useful and actually what's ideal is is a balance between the two.
1: And where where does the research go next?
0: So we have created a self-assessment that um, is freely available online at our website, which is radicallytraditional.org. And we are the idea is to start to improve society. The idea is to improve society by helping organisations create and sustain high performance. So, so by creating phenomenal organisations, they will then collectively start to, to have a positive impact on society. And the assessment is the first step in organisations essentially learning how they can learn from from the organizations we've studied the Centennials as we've called them and we are starting to build a community of great organizations and starting to get them to sort of work together so you know part of our ambition is to keep the really excellent organizations that we have in society to stay excellent Um, but then it's also about taking the learning from those and trying to use that to help others improve. So, so in many ways, this is kind of our first step at saying, well, this is what we think is, is interesting. Um, and then now starting to apply it to different sectors. What's also quite interesting is different sectors pick up on different ideas and are also challenged by different ideas. So. The idea of focusing on getting better, not bigger, is quite a challenging idea to a lot of businesses because most leaders in business, if you ask them how you're doing, the first thing they do is tell you how much they grew last year. It's just like, it's the standard answer. Um, And to actually say to them, well, maybe you shouldn't be trying to get bigger. Maybe you should be trying to get better at what you do. And then if that results in you getting bigger, then great but don't growth shouldn't be the number one objective and actually when you take that off the table as the as an objective it completely refocuses the mind you you look at things very differently so that's the challenge to them whereas if you look at the sports sector for example uh what's one of the things that they've been really picking up on um is uh this idea of um, of how do you manage handovers? How do you do that? When often there's a hiring and firing mentality. Um, and also they what we, we've started to get a lot of them to, to, to think about how do you actually learn? How do you unpick success? So we're very good at unpicking failure, but how do you unpick success? And also how do you build a culture where you make big changes when you're winning? So the All Blacks, for example found that they were most likely to lose after a big win and as a result of that that's now when they often make their biggest team changes so they won't allow complacency to come, complacency to set in whereas i was doing some work with the british rowing team uh, last week and they're they're in a, they're in a challenge at the moment they've dropped from you know it depends how you measure the rankings but in 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 the rankings that they they used they dropped from being number one in the world to number 12 and when you unpick that it's because they didn't change enough rows after london 2012 so before 2012 they generally lost 40 percent of their rows after each olympics because they didn't want their their performance to dip we wanted to be the first nation where we didn't, our performance didn't dip in the Olympics after our home games and we achieved that at Rio. But because of that, they kept most of their rowers from 2012. The result of that was 80% of their rowers left after Rio because it rebalanced. And now they've gone from being number one in the world to number 12. So it shows you, you know, you see this again in business, you know, there's a lot of talk about the vitality index 40% 40% of your this year's revenue should come from products developed in the last three years and you need to keep that going it's a very similar pattern i always think that's fascinating when you see the same number the 40 percent just pops up and essentially what it's saying is that when you're if you're currently very successful you now need to get rid of 40 percent of the things that made you successful if you want to stay successful and i think that's you know so different sectors pick up on different things and, and, and it's, you know, that's part of what makes it interesting, actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's riveting research. I would recommend everyone to check out How Winning Organisations Last 100 Years by Alex Hill, Liz Mellon and Jules Goddard. Uh, and the website is radicallytraditional.org. Alex, thank you very much. Thank
0: you, Stuart. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.